Well, if you would please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 4. And if you're looking for that, just go to the end of your Bible, to the book of Revelation, and go backwards a few short little books. Jude and then John's letters. 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We'll be in 1st John chapter 4. And I'd like to read two verses from that chapter for you this morning as we consider the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. 1st John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. 1st John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I want to ask you, do you perceive yourself to be loved this morning? Do you perceive yourself to be loved? This is a time of year when these perceptions are heightened. We look around and we see Christmas gatherings. We see people coming together. And for many what this means is great joy in circumstances. It means coming together with a group of people, family, friends, other loved ones, uh, who deeply care about you, who you're confident in, you're comfortable with, you enjoy coming together with, and you look forward to this time. For others, this is a time of difficulty and sadness, loneliness even, or perhaps resentment that you have to go see those people again. It's not a time where you feel loved. It's a time where you feel like you have to endure and get through. And then there are those who don't necessarily have anyone to spend this time with, and they don't perceive any kind of love at all. Sometimes people seek to make up for such things, uh, especially in our day, through the means of what they would call self-love, trying to take care of themselves, trying to make sure that they themselves are taken care of and that it doesn't really matter how other people treat them. In fact, you can talk badly to yourself about other people because, after all, they don't care about you. But all that matters is that if you love yourself, others try to make up for this by changing their circumstances, by pouring into relationships, by trying to mend them and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with having joyful get-togethers and gatherings. In fact, it is one of God's gracious gifts to us to be able to come together with those that we love. And those who have that should be thankful. But the greatest earthly love and the greatest gatherings that we have and the most joyful things that we get to participate in are only a mere shadow. Just a hint of what is available. And... The absence of such human love, or the, at least the low level that we might receive it in from some other people, doesn't even compare to the love which God has for his people. There's a kind of love that we perceive by virtue of human experience through what we see with our eyes and what we experience through our actual tangible interactions with other people. We hug them, we see them, we hear them, we talk to them. We perceive this with our senses. But there's another, greater, better kind of love that we perceive through the eyes of faith. Not because we invent this love, but because we take at 
God's word what he has done for us. Because God in reality, in time and space, has given those tangible experiences to someone to demonstrate his love. And then has had, uh, had that written down so that we would be able to actually know about it by faith. In fact, 1 John begins in this way when John talks about the love that God has and what he has sent to testify about this. Uh, in the first two verses of the book, he says, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. That is to say that the apostles saw and touched and experienced Jesus Christ, the love of God as revealed in the person of the Son, with a body, tangible, someone that they could hear and see and perceive with the senses. And yet we have not seen him in this way, but we experience the love of Jesus Christ and the love of God through Jesus Christ by virtue of the testimony of those who saw him. Those who experienced him in this way were eyewitnesses and wrote these things down so that we could know the same light and the same life and the same love of God as revealed in the Son, Jesus Christ. And so we want to consider this morning what it means to be loved by God. And we actually want to spend the next two Sundays considering this. Um, over the next two weeks, we're going to talk about the subject of the love of God, and particularly his love for his people. Um, next time, we'll talk about the love of God from beginning through now all the way to eternity. This week, we're going to talk about the love of God in a specific act. That is, the sending of his son into the world. And this is, of course, what we consider at Christmas time: Jesus becoming man. The son of God coming into the world and doing so to bring joy, to bring life, to bring salvation, and to demonstrate the love of God. Now, the passage that we're in really is, uh, it's given in the middle of some instructions. And you can see this here, and you're probably familiar with this text, most of you, and you can notice that uh, there are some commands that surround this. Verse 7, beloved, let us love one another. Uh, after verse 10, in verse 11, he says, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And these commands are given because love for one another is the evidence of having known God, having come to know him. It is the evidence of being born of God. If you don't love one another, that is, if you don't love other Christians, then you're not a Christian yourself. This is what he's saying. You have not been loved by God in this way. So this is the proper response of someone who has been loved by God, and this is the evidence of someone who is loved by God. The statement in verse 8 is foundational to all that John says in our passage. So let's look at that for a moment. He says, the one who does not know love, or excuse me, the one who does not love does not know God. Why? For God is love. God is love. What does that mean in practice, in the world, and toward us? What does it mean that God is love? Well, sometimes people will deduce and derive their own conclusions about what this means. And many times they don't even realize they're, they're just assuming what is meant by God is love. And what people mean when they say that God is love, sometimes they will say God is nothing but love. 
That's all that God is. John says God is love, and that's what he is. Throw out the rest of the Bible and any statements that are made about who God is and what he's like, and you come to this conclusion. God is love and nothing else. Or maybe they tone that down a little bit, and they say God is love, and he's not exclusively love, but he's more love than he is anything else. Whatever else God is, it's less than love. Love is the most important thing about who God is. And so we need to emphasize that. And we need to make sure that nothing else that we would talk about would ever give anybody the impression that there's anything as important as God's love when it comes to understanding who God is. And therefore, they will take any attribute of God, his holiness, his truth, his justice, his perfections, and they will subjugate that underneath their view of the love of God. Or they might even stretch it further and say, God is love, meaning God loves the way I define love. God is whatever I think love should be. And therefore, God's character aligns with what I think that other people should do toward one another. And therefore, God approves of every act that someone might commit because I approve of acts that people would commit. But we don't have to guess what it means for God to be love. In fact, we're supposed to not guess what it is because John defines for us how God shows his love, and that helps us to back up and to see what the love of God actually is. Now, when John makes the statement, God is love, God, he is not saying that God is love in an ontological sense, in the sense that he's saying God is this, and this is what he consists of. He's not saying that love is the essence of God. That if you just say, well, the, all the love that's in the world or what love is, the action of love, well, that's what God is. And God consists of this. This is not an essential attribute of God in the sense of what he is made up of. This is different than, for example, the fact that God is spirit. This is who God is. It's part of his essential nature. Love, on the other hand, is one of God's attributes. And it is an attribute that he is full of and he loves like no one else does. But John's statement is powerful not because it tells us God is only love or that God is made up of love. But because he states it in such a way as to help us see that God is permeated by this attribute. That God's love is incomparable. When John says God is love... He is saying that God is so loving that he could be put in this way. It's almost as if he is love itself. He possesses it. He expresses it. He models it. He even defines it. This is how loving God is, that John could go and say, God is love. And in verses 9 and 10 then, John gives us what is the greatest demonstration of the love of God. What exactly is God's love and what shows his love for us? You know the answer. What does he tell us in verse 9 and in verse 10? What does God do? God has sent. God has sent his son into the world. Verse 10. He loved us and did what? Sent his son. The love of God is not demonstrated by simply a feeling that God has for us. It's not just a distant attribute of his character, but it played out in real time and space with God sending someone, sending his son into the world. When Jesus showed up and was born in Bethlehem, that is the expression of God's love, the ultimate expression of God's love because he sent him into the world for us. 
And as this text tells us, he sent him to give us life and he sent him to pay for our sins. This is what I want to consider as we look at these two verses this morning. The two purposes of God sending his son into the world that show his love for us. The purposes for which God sent his son and the fact that God sent his son, these show his deep and abiding, his eternal and his supreme love for his people. And so we want to see in this text the love of God in sending his son. The first purpose why God sent his son was to give us life. God sent his son to give us life. And this shows his love. The sending of Jesus into the world, the purpose of giving, him, giving us life, shows and puts on display God's love for us, his people. It says that he displayed his love. You see this in verse 9? By this, the love of God was manifested in us. So by this, or in this very act, in this very thing, God's love was manifested, he says, or displayed, it was shown, it was put on display. It, of course, had always existed. God's love did not begin at the incarnation. God's love didn't start a few years before Jesus was sent when he said, well, I'm going to decide to do this. God's love, of course, did not start for Christians when they became Christians. God's love instead was manifested, meaning it had been there, but now it was revealed. This is just like when many of you will get a gift from your family or your loved ones in some way. Maybe you already have. And you don't say at that moment, I got a gift. You must have just begun loving me. Of course not. This is the demonstration of their love. And the same thing is true. The love has always been there, but there's something that demonstrates that in a specific time and way. And he says this love was manifested in us, or perhaps better, as many versions render it, among us. Meaning, not so much that the love of God was manifested inside of us, although the Holy Spirit does dwell in believers. But really, the idea is among us. That among believers, among Christians, and this is who he's talking to, God's love was displayed where we could all see it. How? By virtue of the Son being sent. This is the way that God loved us. This is the way that he displayed his love. And it is important that he does this. It's important for us to know. Not even just that he would tell us. Uh, perhaps some of you have known someone that uh, you, you had a love for them, but you kept that entirely to yourself. Does that benefit them in any way for you not to show them that love? Uh, or maybe it would be that someone would tell someone that they love them and express that love for them, but then they never do anything that actually shows love toward them. All it is is empty words. But they think that they love you, or they at least would say that they love you. If that happens, that kind of rings hollow, doesn't it? But that's not what God did. God doesn't just possess a love for us that we don't know about. God doesn't just tell us that he has a love for us, but God actually displayed. He showed that he loved us. And the way that he did this is an expression of love that only God would do. And not only that, but it's an expression of love that only God could do. God loved us in a way that no one else could, and he displayed it in a way that no one else could. 
Now, I don't know if any of you have ever been involved in one of these. Uh, I have only been involved in one live in-person auction in my life. Maybe you've been a part of this, an auction. Pretty exciting. Uh, A little bit nerve-wracking because you don't really know what's going on unless, I guess, you've done many of these. Um, I was involved in one, and it was by accident when I was a child, and my grandmother brought me along to an auction down at the Knoxville Convention Center. I had $20, and I was going to bid on something up to $20, and the bidding got to $30, and I was the one bidding $30, and I knew I was in trouble if no one else bid because I didn't have that much money. Thankfully, uh, the bidding went up pretty quickly and I was absolved of my obligation to actually have to pay for something that I didn't have the money for. Well, uh, in that time, uh, this was, it was kind of scary. And uh, not because, uh, not because I didn't think that I was going to win it because I was worried that I was going to. But I can imagine um, what it would be like in an auction, if you're attempting to bid on something that's really, really rare, and you want this item badly, but then you look and you see someone walking into the room, and it's the richest person in the entire world. And you say, the issue here is not going to be uh, whether they can actually outbid me. It's just a matter of, are they willing to let me have it or not? Are they willing to do this? It's not that no one else will win the item, Uh, up for auction, it's this. If this person chooses, he will be able to get that. He has something at his disposal that no one can outbid. If he wants it, it's his because he can do what no one else can do. And in that case, it's a matter of riches. But in this case, it is with God a matter of who he has that he could send. See, God can love in a way that no one else can because of what he has. And when he chose the ultimate way to express his love, no one could compete with him. Because the way that God showed his love was by sending his one and only son. His one and only son. God manifested his love among us by sending his only begotten son into the world. He sent his only begotten son into the world. Now John uses the word world in a variety of ways, as you might know. Sometimes it refers to that which opposes God by means of sin and rebellion. Uh, Here, it's a little bit more neutral. It just simply refers to being in the world as opposed to being in heaven. Jesus was not in this world, on this earth, but then he came into the world. That was the change. Of course, this implies, by the way, that he existed before he came into the world. God sent him from where he was into the world. But he didn't merely exist. Rather, he existed as what he says here. God's only begotten son. His only begotten son. Now, you may know that there are uh, some other ways to render this word and that it's probably better to put it in a term that doesn't emphasize the idea of being born or begotten, but rather Uh, A word that indicates uniqueness, uniqueness, his one and only son. Jesus was born into the world, but the word here is not meant to describe someone being born or birth, but it's meant to describe being one of a kind, being unique, God's only son. Now, in a sense, you know that God has many sons. Everybody who belongs to Jesus Christ, everyone who has come to saving faith in Christ is adopted as his son. And so he has many sons in that way. But in this sense, God has only one son, the son of God. And there are countless ways where Jesus on the earth was unlike anyone else. His conception, his birth, according to prophecy, his life, his 
atoning death, his resurrection. But John tells us about a way that Jesus was unlike anyone else even before he came into the world. That is, he is the only begotten son or the one and only son. This means that when God sent him, he was sending someone who was unlike anybody else. He was sending his son, his one and only. Now think about what this means for the various celebrations, religiously speaking, that we go through. Uh, Because there are many religions in the world. There are many religions that celebrate holidays. They celebrate holidays this time of year. And many people might think that there's just really no difference between them other than the details. But fundamentally, everyone's just kind of doing the same thing. They're trying to get by. They're trying to love each other. They're trying to worship God. And they're just doing so in the way that they know how. And everybody's kind of on the same page. But this is simply not the case. Because the Christian religion revolves around God's one and only Son. He is unique. He is unlike anyone else. Our faith goes to God not through just uh, whatever system we decide to come up with, but our faith is in God through the one and only Son. No one else is like Him. And if we don't have Him, then we have nothing. We can't access God through anyone else. God didn't send four different ways to get to Him, or 12 different ways, or some that are slightly better than others. Rather, He sent his only begotten son, his one and only son into the world so that we might live, as he says, through him. And I might also specify that he intends through this, that we might live through him and him alone. We are unable to find life through anyone else. Peter tells us this in the book of Acts. He says, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name given given under heaven by which men may be saved. And so then, Jesus is the only begotten Son whom God sent into the world. And it is the nature of this one as the Son, as the only begotten, that makes this somehow even more costly of a gift that God gave. He sent him into the world. He had only one that he could send. And he was willing to give up the only one that he had. God did this out of his grace. He did this out of his love. And he did it with with a purpose, which was to give us life. So in sending his son into the world, not only did he send his only, his one and only son, but he gave us life. It says, so that we might live through him. We might live through him. Christians, because of what Jesus did, now have life. And they have life in a way that no one else has. This is a busy season of year, isn't it? You feel it. You feel the weight of it. You feel the turmoil. You say, I thought this was supposed to be a holiday. Why is everything so crazy right now? Uh, but there's sort of a vibrancy to it. There's sort of a, a, there, there's a buzz and there's a life that's exciting. Even to people that want nothing to do with, with, uh, with Christ, with the gospel, there can be a kind of excitement that, in fact, sometimes may die down afterward and leave people feeling a little bit discouraged. Um, but this is a kind of life where there's action, there's activity. But that's not at all the kind of life that's described here. And in fact, you don't even have to have any of those things in order to have the kind of life that's described here. Because he's not talking about life that just consists of action and busyness and activity. He's talking about life eternal. Life that means something. That which the Bible calls life indeed. Jesus was sent into the world to give life. When the first man was created, he was placed in the Garden of Eden, he was warned, don't do what? Eat from this one particular tree. But rather than listening to God, he became wise in his own eyes. He listened to the voice of his wife who had been deceived by the serpent. And they ate of the fruit of that tree together. God had told him, in the day you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. 
that day, Adam did not receive physical death, but he did receive a death sentence and he died later on. But there was also a kind of spiritual death that took place. Death spread to all men uh, through Adam where everyone dies. And not only that, but also there is a kind of internal spiritual death that took place. Ephesians 2 tells us that unbelievers are dead in their trespasses and sins. Adam and all who came from him now we're under the curse of sin and of death in a fallen world. And everyone who has entered into the world since then has been subject to that same problem. We feel it acutely, the curse of sin and death. But when Jesus came, he came to fix that problem. He came to bring what? Life. First John 2, 25. This is the promise which he himself made to us. Eternal life. Eternal life. And God sent Jesus to give life in really two phases. That which is future and that which we have here and now. First, uh, excuse me, John 11, verses 25 to 27. After Jesus' friend Lazarus dies, he's comforting Lazarus' sister. And he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She says to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. He is the one who would bring life. And for the Christian, this eternal life is such a guaranteed possession that, uh, that John speaks of Christians already having it. Already having it. 1 John 5, 11 through 13. The testimony is this. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Eternal life. In 1 John 3, 14, John says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. There is a future resurrection coming where everyone who dies in Christ will live and will never die again. And there is an eternal life component even of the here and now where you're no longer subject to the slavery of sin and you no longer have to serve Satan and you no longer are doing just your own will in spiritual death, but instead you now have life. You have passed out of death into life. Lots of people are alive, but only some actually have life. Only some actually have life. Uh, the uh, minister J.C. Ryle in the 1800s wrote a, uh, a message called Alive or Dead. And he wants us to consider the ways that we might know whether we ourselves have the life that John describes. This is what he says. He sent his son into the world so that we might live through him. And so there are a few things um, that might give you by way of comparison some tests that Ryle puts out to see whether you are alive or dead. And he describes someone who once was dead but now is alive. I want you to listen along as I read a few of these things that Ryle mentions. Begin to quote, Once he did not consider he had a bad heart. He might have his faults and be led away by bad company and temptations, but he had a good heart at the bottom. Now, he would tell you, he knows no heart so bad as his own. He finds it, quote, deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, Jeremiah 17, 6. Once, he did not suppose it was a very hard matter to get to heaven. He thought he had only to repent and say a few prayers and do what he could, and Christ would make up what was lacking. Now, he believes the way is narrow, and few find it. 
He's convinced he could never have made his own peace with God. He's persuaded that nothing but the blood of Christ could wash away his sins. His only hope is to be justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Romans 3.28. Once... He could see no beauty and excellence in the Lord Jesus Christ. He couldn't understand some minister speaking so much about him. Now, he would tell you, he is the pearl above all price. Uh, The chief among 10,000. His redeemer, his advocate, his priest, his king, his physician, his shepherd, his friend, his all. Once, he thought lightly about sin. He couldn't see the necessity of being so particular about it. He couldn't think a man's words and thoughts and actions were of such importance and required such watchfulness. Now, he would tell you sin is the abominable thing which he hates, the sorrow and burden of his life. He longs to be more holy. He can enter thoroughly into Whitfield's desire, I want to go where I shall neither sin myself nor see others sin anymore. I am sick of all I do and stand astonished that the Redeemer still continues to make use of and bless me. Surely I am more foolish than any man No one receives so much and does so little. From Whitfield's letters. Once he found no pleasure in means of grace. The Bible was neglected. His prayers, if he had any, were a mere form. Sunday was a tiresome day. Sermons were a weariness and often sent him to sleep. Now all is altered. These things are the food, the comfort, the delight of his soul. Once he disliked earnest-minded Christians. He shunned them as melancholy, low-spirited, weak people. Now they are the excellence of the earth, of whom he cannot see too much. He is never so happy as he is in their company. He feels if all men and women were saints, it would be heaven upon earth. Finally, once he cared only for this world, its pleasures, its business, its occupations, its rewards, now he looks upon it as an empty, unsatisfying place, an inn, a lodging, a training school for the life to come. His treasure is in heaven. His home is beyond the grave. I ask you, do you have life? Do you have life? Life, as described here, is something that everyone needs. But it comes only through Jesus. There is no other way. And it comes because the Son was sent into the world. People think of Christmas as the celebration of a new life, of a special new life coming into the world. In reality, it is quite different. The one who came into the world was already alive before he got here. The one who was born already had life. And life is actually what the rest of us need. It wasn't that we were alive and he was not. It's that he was alive and we were not. And Christmas represents the coming of the Son into the world to give us life and to do so, as John 10.10 says, abundantly. So, God knew that we needed life. How do we get it? Well, John 20 tells us, the same Apostle John, he says that I've written these things to you so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have what? Life in his name. If you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he came to earth to live and to die and to be raised from the dead, to fulfill the prophecies of the Bible, and that he is the only way of salvation, then you put your trust in him and you have eternal life here and now and promised and guaranteed For the future. This is what Jesus came into the world to bring. So God's love is displayed in sending his son to give us life. And if verse 9 tells us that his love was displayed in the sending of his son to give that, then verse 10 tells us that this love is displayed in God doing all of this, but doing it despite 
our unworthiness to receive such a gift. That is to say, God sent his son not only to give us life, but to pay for our sins. God has sent his son to pay for our sins. By this, the love of God. Excuse me, verse 10. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This verse really digs deeper into the nature of the love that God shows. In verse 9, God sacrifices for us. He sends his son. He gives us a benefit. He gives us eternal life. But John heightens the significance. As if it's not amazing enough that God gave his one and only son and that he cared for us and gave us eternal life, which is an an incomparable gift. God did this, John says, despite our utter unworthiness to receive such a gift. John tells us this, first of all, by showing that he loved us first. God loved us first. He says, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. John goes out of his way to be clear that love did not begin from us, and it didn't start at the same time as two parties moving together, being drawn toward one another. Rather, this was a one-way pursuit. And this is the way that God loves throughout the Bible. In fact, when you read about God's love toward his chosen nation of Israel, we read this in Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8. He says, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. In other words, there wasn't something great about Israel that made him set his love upon them. He simply loved them. That's what he did. Romans 5 tells us, beginning in verse 6, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christmas happened while everyone was a sinner. Jesus came into the world when there was not one person who deserved him to come. Consider the nature of most religions, God being sought by man, man coming up with things to pursue God, man coming up with ideas to bridge the gap to get back to God, or at least to placate God, or to make himself think that there's some connection with God. It's man reaching out to God, man calling God. Consider, on the other hand, the distinct nature of Christianity, God seeking men. God seeking after men. This strikes at our pride. This is hard for many people who are not Christians to accept, to be willing to take on that basis. We want there to be something about us that is lovely. We want to be loved. We like to be loved because there's something about us that appeals to the other party. But in fact, it is with salvation just the opposite. There was nothing that we produced in God that made him have some kind of an affection for us. If anything, it was pity and compassion because we did not deserve it. In fact, God's love, as we'll see shortly, is expressed in providing redemption for the very things that we have done wrong against him. Now, it is certainly true that we should love God. We know that we are supposed to love God. In fact, we're commanded to do this. In Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, there's a command. You know the verse, you shall love the Lord your God 
with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. This is what we are supposed to do. And this wasn't just for Israel that that was spoken to. Jesus reiterated this as the greatest commandment where all the law came from. In Matthew 22, verses 36 and 37, he's asked, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Jesus says, you should do this, and you should love God with everything you have. You should love him perfectly. We should love God. And Christians who have been redeemed do love God. But we don't love God as greatly as he loves us. And to John's point here in 1 John 4, God started it. God began the love relationship. It is not that we loved God, but that he loved us we are too quick to speak about the love that is between us and god as something that arises from us and we should feel obligated to do this and we should delight to love god but understand that our love toward god is a response it is a response to uh, to all that god has done for us out of gratitude and it is a response that flows out of a new ability that we formerly did not have before we were christians if we were not believers, then we could not love God in any kind of true and uncorrupted way. We would be uh, loving God in a distorted way or only loving the things that he gives us that we like or only loving God insofar as he has helped us to get the things that we prefer to have in life. But we don't love God for who he is, taking him for all that he is, unquestioningly saying, I love God as he's revealed himself, as he is in truth. We simply say, I I kind of love parts of God, or I love the things God has given me. But when we're a Christian, we can love God in truth, and yet still, it doesn't measure up to the love that God has shown for us. When God loved us, then it wasn't a gradual, mutual drawing together of two interested parties. Rather, it was an act of true, loving charity, one directionally toward us. Um, some of you are, again, getting and giving Christmas gifts, maybe even today. Maybe you did that this morning before you came here. I don't know. And the generosity in a lot of these gifts is often huge. Uh, the amount of cost involved or thought that goes into this and the, the love behind it. Uh, usually these gifts are given to loved ones, but also among loved ones. Meaning that it's, it's often that uh, when you give a gift to someone, and it's not always equal, but at least there's some relationship there of love where you're giving it to someone who doesn't hate you in return. You're giving the gift to someone that you love, and they love you, at least to some degree. But this was not the case when God sent his great gift. God gave a gift to people who did not like him and who did everything they could to keep him from being the one to fulfill his role over them as God and as creator and as authority. And so God didn't look at us and say, wow, they love me so much. Or, you know, there's a little bit of love for me in there. Or there's a little bit of good in them that I'm going to, you know, sort of build and grow by virtue of giving this gift. Instead, he said, they don't love me at all. But I love them. And I'm going to send my one and only son for them. God loved us. And therefore, John says, he sent his son to pay for our sins. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Um, you see here some interesting language. Um, God loved us, and this is an ongoing state. We did not love God. 
we at no point loved God. It did not exist that we loved God, but God did and had loved us. And there's a one-time act that demonstrates this. We're going to consider next Sunday what it means for God to love us all the time, from eternity past to eternity future. But this shows that there is a definitive act in history that shows God's love. It's not just a general, constant disposition, but it is a one-time action, sending Jesus into the world. In other words, Jesus did not have to be baby Jesus twice or over and over again. God doesn't have to send Jesus again in 2023 or 2024 to come and to redeem again. God doesn't have to show you the proof of his love again. You can point to that one spot, that one act and say, God loves me. And I know that because he sent his son this one time and one time only. That's all he ever needed to do. And that's enough to demonstrate his eternal love for me. Jesus did come into the world only once. He doesn't have to come twice, but he did have to live a perfect life. And he did have to grow up because God sent him to do something else, which is to give his life. He sent him to pay for our sins. In other words, God provided a sacrifice for us, a sacrifice. He calls it here a propitiation. He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's a word that's used in a few places in scripture, also in 1 John 2, 2, where John says um, that Jesus himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Propitiation is, uh, there's a number of angles to it, but essentially it is an offering that substitutes for the punishment for wrongdoing. In the Old Testament, there were animal sacrifices that would be offered and there was the one who would offer the propitiation, and then there was the propitiation itself, the sacrifice itself, that would take the place of the person being in trouble, receiving the punishment for that. And Jesus himself is said here to be the propitiation. Now let's back up and think about this for a second. God is said in verse 8 to be what? Love. Love. Um, as I mentioned earlier, people will often take this truth, and they'll run with it to kind of an extreme that the Bible doesn't describe. They'll fill in their own blanks on what love actually means. They define love in a certain way, and then, therefore, they define God in a certain way. They say things like, God is love, so he would never punish anyone. God is love, so maybe he would never tell people hard things. God is love, so he just wants people to flourish and thrive and be kind to each other. And they may even take it a step further in various types of personal application. They'll say, uh, well, God is love, so if there's anything else in the Bible that contradicts that, I'm just not really going to believe those things about God. Uh, this doesn't really align with my personal understanding of what love is. And so they take this and kind of this distorted prism of what love is. They see the rest of the Bible through this and they say, well, God must not really be like those things. And they sort of selectively believe that. They might even take it further and reject the God of the Bible outright because they see him doing things in the other parts of the Bible that doesn't align with their view of what love is. And they might even, on the personal side, say, if God is love and love is letting people do what they want and just wanting them to enjoy life and be happy, and we're supposed to let God love, or we're supposed to love other people like God does, then we should never judge or correct anyone on a moral basis because that's not imitating the love of God. 
John, by his specificity in verse 10, gives us a correction to those wrong understandings of God and wrong understandings of love. Because the same God who is said to be love punishes sin severely. The same God who is love punishes sin, makes sure that there is a payment for sin. And in fact, the very act of providing and of dishing out punishment toward the sacrifice is the expression of God's love. God's love cannot be spoken of apart from dealing with sin. He is sent to be the propitiation for our sins. You say, we shouldn't even talk about sin at all with regard to love. That's not loving. Let's take it a step further, John says, and let's talk about a sacrifice and a payment for sin. God punishing someone with regard to sins. God's love and God's justice are not at all incompatible. In fact, they go together. But the way they go together is that God loved us and provided that we as Christians would not have to be the one to bear that punishment. The love of God is that his justice is met in the sending of his own son to be the one that bore that sacrifice. People want to talk about the love of God and have it to be kind of a, an emotional, sort of a feeling-based, just kind of overlook everything kind of issue. But if we do that, then we miss the very thing that shows us more than anything what God's love is like and the degree to which he shows his love. He sent his son. He was willing to do this. There was a punishment that had to be paid that we could never repay because we deserve God's justice and our sin against him merits eternal judgment. This is what hell exists for because there is no way that we can repay to a holy God the depth of what sin means against him. And so the love of God is to send someone who could bear that punishment. This is the glory of God sending his son into the world. He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins so that God could execute justice and so that he could demonstrate his love at the same time. And his love is on display by providing that his justice would be satisfied not by punishing us, but by giving what belonged to him. Romans 3.25 tells us about Jesus, that he was displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. And this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, that is at the cross, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God remains just and righteous and always does what is right and always deals properly with sin. And he can declare people righteous who have done the most horrible things that you can ever think of. Because Jesus went to the cross. When he is on the cross, when Jesus comes into the world and he is displayed in this way as the propitiation, God shows that he deals with sin and he doesn't just let it go willy-nilly and that he doesn't uh, not care about righteousness. But he also shows the way for people to be right with God and to have their sins forgiven. So we don't downplay sin in order to increase the love of God. And we don't downplay God's justice to boost his love and our perception of it. Instead, we let it be what it is. And then God's love is shown to be all the greater because of the sacrifice that was required to deal with that. When Jesus comes into the world, he is God's one and only son who comes to die in our place so that if we put our faith in him, 
we have our deserved sin forgiven. Our sins are bad. Much worse than we would understand apart from knowing God's holy character as revealed through scripture. But God in his grace not only told us about our problem, but he provided a solution at the greatest possible cost. A couple of takeaways from what John is telling us here. God initiated this love. God showed his love to the greatest possible degree. This shows his unbreakable love for his people As I mentioned at the beginning, perhaps you feel a little bit unloved or less than optimally loved or less loved than you would prefer to be. Or maybe you're too dependent upon the love of other people. And if that were ever to go away or weaken, then you might not handle that very well. But God's love is unchanging, unbreakable, and greater than anything that any other person could love you with. He loved us when we didn't love him, and that assures us of his love at all times going forward. So we should be confident in the unchanging love of God toward us if we are believers in Christ. And then, if we are believers, then we ought also to love one another. Love is a defining attribute of God, and in some ways he loves like no one else can and no one else does. But at the same time, love is what we call a communicable attribute. Other people can do it too. It's expressed not in exactly the same way. It's not possible for us to send the Son of God to be sacrificed. It's not expressed in the same degree. God's love is always going to be greater than ours because he's so much greater than we are. But we can love each other really and truly. That's what he says in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. We should love one another because love comes from God. Love shows that we're born of God. We're obligated toward other Christians to love in as close of a way as possible as God did toward us. Love shows, he says, that God abides in us. And love shows that God's love is perfected in us, verse 12. We should love one another in response to this as well. But this is an offer. This is an offer. This passage speaks to those who have already received and begun to experience the love of God in this way. But the offer is just as open for anyone else. And the offer is always open so long as God delays in sending Jesus again. But it is open at this moment. And it is offered. And I urge you to make sure that this is what you have done. That you don't just celebrate Christmas. You don't just receive gifts. You don't just participate in love. But that you know the love of God that comes only through Jesus Christ by faith in his name. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the sending of your son into the world. What an indescribable gift what an act of love and what confidence that gives us that you are for us and that you care for us and that you are willing to spare no expense in order to bring about our eternal good thank you for loving us may we not forget it but may we live in alignment with understanding and remembering that you have loved us in this way we thank you for your son and we pray in his name amen